0: That you had to wait. It totally slipped my mind. I lost all my sense of time. So buy me that drink and just let me think, and I'll tell you the reasons why. My
1: alibi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Alibi, the podcast. So, Alibi the podcast is an initiative started by a law student association, specifically Sabahan Law Student Association, known as Gagasan Mahasiswa Unang Unang Sabah, or in short, GANS. So, this is another episode of our special podcast series where we invite former members of the judiciary to share their experiences with us their life in the legal profession, as well as the judiciary, starting from the time as a young lawyer till they made it up to the very top. So I'm your host for today, Michelle Wong, and joining me is my co-host, Amber, and our very special guest, uh, the Honorable Tan David Wong. So, uh, hello Tan how are you feeling today?
2: I'm great, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yes,
1: yeah, so the pleasure is all ours. So before we get
3: into the questions, let's start off with a brief introduction of Tanshri's career. In 2005, Tanshri David was appointed as a Judicial Commissioner at the High Court in Kuching, followed by a promotion to the post as a judge in 2007 in the same court. He was then transferred to the High Court in Kota Kinabalu in 2009. Tanshri David held the position as a Court of Appeal judge from 2013 to 2018 before being appointed as a Federal Court judge. Soon after that, he was sworn in by the Yang Departan Agong to the office of Chief Judge of the High Court of Sabah and Sarawak before officially retiring in 2020 after reaching the mandatory retirement
1: age. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Amber. So now we've kind of like gauged into a little bit of uh, the career behind Tansri David Wall. So again, we would like to know about your uh, early life, Tansri. So maybe like any other guests, we would like to start from the very beginning. Probably, can you give us like some brief childhood memories of yours? How did it all start about?
2: Well, I hail from the town of Sandakan on the east coast of Sabah. Um, I did my primary school there um, at Song Sil and then at St. Sicilia. then was a Kuwait. And when I, after Form 1, um, My dad uh, decided to send me overseas. I was at at the age of about 11. So I went to Australia uh, and I did boarding for six years. High school at a Catholic boarding school in a place called Lismore, which is a country town. Um, And it's away from the town. And when it floods, we are literally cut off from the city, cut off from population. So uh, six years there, then then after that, um, I went to university at the University of New South Wales, uh, where I did uh, accountancy and law. Uh, That, in short, is what's uh, my sort of my education background up to my university uh, days. Mm.
1: I see that's very interesting to know that you've done like six years uh, overseas. So uh, prob- uh, probably you can tell us uh, whether these six years uh, in high school studying abroad, how does it affect or how is it different as compared to all the other students who did their you know, high school, all six years of the high school in Malaysia? Does that well, affect well, the, the legal? Uh,
2: yeah. Because of my age at that time, um, English was the main language, right? So, um, and when I left, when I was 11, um, uh, they were, I don't remember doing Bahasa then, you know, 67, 63. So 24 years, I was still doing English. And, um, but our English wasn't up to standard, so to speak. So uh, at the boarding school, when, when we started, of course, we had some problem uh, with our English, but, uh, you know, you spent six years living with uh, uh, people of another race, Australian, then, right? Um, you Your thinking uh, is actually shaped by the environment that you live in, right? So I could say that I, to a certain extent, my thinking was uh, Australianized, so to speak. Um, today, I still keep my accent if... For example, if you're an Australian, I'll be my my normal Australian accent will come out without any problem, but because I'm speaking to Malaysians. Uh, now, I I I think I still got the I still got the Malaysian slang there. I think <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so after, after that, after that six years there, then then it's five years university at the uh, University of New South Wales. Again, at that time in my time. There wasn't many Asians at university, uh, to be honest. Uh, at my law school, uh, there, were, there were another Singaporean, there was a Fijian, and there was a Japanese. That's about all. And that's the only Asian uh, uh, presence at the law school then. Uh, New South Wales Law School started in 1971, actually. So when I went there in 1972, I was second batch of law students. And leave it or not, uh, Some of our lectures were done under the tree because there were not enough lectures room, right? So it's a very new university. We were, the, our tutorials were done what we called huts. They were literally huts. So when they're not enough, we did the, uh, the lecturing in under the tree where students sit around, the lecturer tells you, to do what, you know, about the law. Uh, that have, that that existed for about a year or two, then we moved to uh, the law school. So I thought that you know, my thinking was really shaped uh, by the environment.
1: Wow, it's really amazing to see how uh, education has developed in terms of humanities and all. Like back in the days, um, students used to study under huts, under trees. And look at us, we have all these uh, wonderful uh, lecture halls. Mm-hmm. um Auditorium, yeah. So we are really blessed with it. So that's very interesting, Tan Sri. So, uh, Amber, do you have a, a follow-up question?
3: Yeah, actually, I have a question for you, Tan Sri. Uh, would you have chosen the same career path if your father did not make the choice to send you overseas at such a young age?
2: If I did not go overseas, I think I think my career path would be different, mm-hmm. right? But at that time, um, the the thinking of the my father's generation was that we need to send our children to overseas. Uh, And his emphasis is English, English, English. At that time, you know, 1967, we became, you know, independence not so long. You know, English was still sort of the dominant language. Um, Again, on hindsight, uh, my father was very wrong, right? Because uh, nowadays you can't survive. I mean, you know, you have to compete with multiple language, you know, so I'm, I don't know about you guys. I'm really envious of the students. Now, um, I had a chamber students who speak three languages, Bahasa Chinese and English. Perfect. And I look at these people, I, 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 with much envy. So, but coming back to career that I chose was that I think, I think it's, um, the nature of the person uh, at, at high school, I enjoyed debating. Uh, so I was uh, in a debate team. I was involved in public speaking competition, right? And you have an Asian actually competing with Australians with, you know, who are speaking their own mother language. So I found it a challenging and of course, uh, my father used to say, you you have to be lawyers because you're always uh, talking back at me during time. So I was one that's always arguing with my father. So so that's the thing that, that So it, it was natural that I took that step to become a, a lawyer.
3: I see. That's very interesting because that's what my parents say about me also. They say, <laughs> uh, you, talk, you talk back too much. Maybe you should be a lawyer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so the thinking has yeah. changed. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's still the same. Yeah, but it's quite Quite interesting because uh, a lot of people would be envious of those who can go overseas, like to Australia to study at yeah. such a young yeah. age, mm-hmm. instead yeah. of you know being stuck uh, in Malaysia. But it's nice to see it from a different point of view. like you're right that being bilingual, trilingual is very uh, beneficial, especially today.
1: So, like, uh, you've mentioned how you were always participating in like, public speaking competitions and debate competitions. So, uh, are these competitions a must in terms of uh, legal profession? Like, how does that contribute, or how does it help in terms of um, well, building it, it, that career?
2: It, it, it will help if you want uh, to be uh, a counsel in court, right? Mm. I mean, now nowadays, you know, there are lawyers doing uh, solicitor work and their lawyers are going to do advocacy in court. Um, but either, way, either route you take, I, I think um, being involved in public speaking is good for the development of a law student either way. Because if you are a solicitor and you, you are very conversant uh, in expressing yourself because you have to exp- explain the, the agreement to your client to sign, Right, you don't, sh- you, I mean, gone to the days where you just shove the agreement in front of the client, just sign and the client will believe you. Because the client now I'm more inquisitive. They're asking, uh, why is this, why is that? So if you are able to communicate better, right? And if you take, I mean, I found myself to be involved in public speaking because I want to develop the my skill of, of communicating. It's all about communication. And it's same whether you're a solicitor or, or a counsel, right? As a counsel, of course, if, if you're a good communicator, uh, that's a plus. That's a plus, right? So so I, I think, you know, public speaking for law students, I wouldn't say a must, but it's a good skill to have.
1: Yeah, I totally agree, because uh, I think... I was part of a trilingual speech competition back when I was in high school. Uh, I'm not sure how much that it actually contributes in terms of advocacy for me in my legal profession, but uh, probably like you're more eloquent in speaking. And I think one of the major factor uh, or like major contributing factor is that it helps in stage fright. (laughs) because <laughs> like it's yeah. inevitable yes. that you have to speak in front of a crowd in court or like be speaking in front of your clients so uh so to anyone yeah. listening if you're a law student or you're still in high school you know do go ahead yeah. be active in all these uh you know extracurricular activities you never yeah. know how it will help you in your future so yeah, yeah thanks very much Tan Sri. Amber yeah. do you have another question?
3: Yeah I'd like to talk more about your time in university Tansri. uh for our listeners, if you didn't know this, Tan Sri actually, as we mentioned before, he took a bachelor's degree in commerce, majoring in accountancy, and he only took law after that. So um, I was wondering if you could give us kind of a little background, uh, share your experience on what it was like taking a degree that wasn't uh, necessary for your career.
2: In the early 70s, law school... Uh were introduced combined courses, right? The new the new law school, I knew I was comparatively new then. So they offered a Bachelor of Commerce and LLB, Bachelor of Science, LLB, right? So I took the Bachelor of Commerce and LLB course. Um, I thought that would be advantageous to me, right? So, uh, and I was, when I was practicing, I, I found it to be very beneficial. Why? Because I, ha- I would have an accounting background, right? I, I, if you ask me to look at a P&L statement, I would understand what it is, right? Um, so in cases that I was involved in, you know, in company matters, that is advantage to someone who has a bas- Bachelor of Commerce degree, right? So that was one of the main reasons I did the, the combined degree. And of course, that degree was like, was structured in such a way the first uh, three years uh, are mostly on accountancy subjects. And you have two or three uh, law subjects, you know, basic law subjects and all that. But when you get to the third, fourth and fifth year, especially fourth and fifth year, it's just pure law. Um, I graduated my accountancy degree on my fourth year because the first three years I've done all the accountancy exams and all that. So on the fourth year, I got my Bachelor of Commerce and then after my fifth year, I get my LLB. Um, I was fortunate after I graduated uh, to work with international audit firm, and I was an auditor. So, um, so being an auditor, you know, we go and check whether the accounts are done properly and all that. So that gave me a, a lot of insight how companies work, how what is the profit, what is the loss, and, and, and all that. So. Uh, that equipped me quite well in my practice days. So it's now now it's quite common to have combined degrees in Australia. Actually, so even now the the, the old school like universities, I don't know they have combined or not, but they're very old university only stuck the law course. But I understand now you can't get to do a law degree without another uh, first degree. So I mean uh, I think gone are the days of thinking. Where you can be a lawyer just by studying law because the world is changing all the time, right? Uh, And it becomes more complicated. So uh, I I think that's how the university, that's how I got into uh, Bachelor of Commerce and Bachelor of Law.
3: I see. So with this kind of course structure, do you find it a bit more difficult to study or was it just a breeze for you?
2: No, nothing is a breeze. (laughs) Nothing is a breeze. (laughs) Uh, of course, my passion was law then, but I, I need to pass my accounting subjects. Um, I don't remember getting any distinction from my accounting subjects. I'd be happy with the credit, right? I think, I, I don't know, maybe I got one now. No, no, I don't think I never got any any distinction for my accounting subjects. So law, like I said, was sort of, I, I I don't know why, it's sort of inbuilt that I was interested in it. And, and uh, so you work, work a bit harder for that life
3: so your time as an auditor you mentioned just now did it make you a bit more analytical when it comes to things that you faced in the law profession
2: sure sure when you audit somebody there's a system to it right when you have a legal problem you also have a system to it. there's no doubt i mean if you want to present a case to the, to a judge you have to be systematic you cannot go go all, go all over the place and i mean you i mean you lose the interest of the judge Realize that. So everything has a system. So that helps. That helps. That helps.
1: I do realize that. Uh, I think most of the students, especially law students nowadays, they don't tend to take another degree. There's no like a combination. Usually they study law all the way. So you've been a uh, a judge, right? So like, uh, do you actually see like the lawyers or young lawyers nowadays? Do are they like disadvantaged because like they do not have another degree at hand?
2: I think the, the I think one of the reasons why they have the first degree first is that to make sure that lawyers when they become uh, fin- when they finish their law degree, they be more mature in their thinking, right? So I mean, nothing beats experience. you can have the you can have the gold medalist from any law school, you know. But when it comes up to the workplace. Uh, everything is new. Everything is new. So I think I think that's maybe that's one of the reasons they wanted to have this first degree so that by the time you do your law course, you are sort of not a mature student, but more mature than if you just go straight uh, from high school, which is 18-year-old kid going to high school, right? And just going through the motion of, of what? But if you have done a, 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 another degree and by the time you do law, you're about 22, 23, you become more analytical become more inquisitive and you're asking questions, uh, why the law is like that, you know. So I, I think that's, maybe that's the reason. I don't know. But I'm sure that it uh, it would help, help somebody, you know, if they have a, a, a prior degree. It helped me anyway.
1: Oh, okay. Like, I think it's because, like, Uh, me myself and Amber, both of us are like just focusing on law ever since uh after high school. So of course, like we are also scared that we do not have the benefit of having like hindsight of accountancy or like commerce. Yeah, but I think most of the students are currently doing what we're doing, and I think it's only like what Tan Sri has mentioned. Experience is most important, and that's how we're going to actually gain uh, whatever knowledge in hindsight, which is through experience. Uh, once we start becoming a lawyer, so uh, Amber, back to you. Actually, um, quick mention. I'm thinking of
3: doing a master's in business administration after my degree, but I'm still thinking about it.
2: No, you you yeah. will, You should. I mean, if you have to. I mean, still, you're still young. I mean, the world yeah. still before you guys, right? Um, it, it, it would help, no doubt. Because you will look. You'll be looking at, uh, at a problem with, from a different angle, right? And, and you, will, yeah. you will find it when you finish your MBA, and then if you look at a legal problem, you're looking at it from a helicopter point of view rather than sort of a tunnel vision. So you you, you have a bigger bigger view to look at because you know what to look for. If you have only a, a legal background, you'll be saying, okay, what's the course of action here? Uh, what, what, what needs to be proved uh, to the... But if you have an MBA, well, you, you may look at it, hey, why do you guys want to go to fight in court? You should settle this. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's, it's a different different outlook to a problem.
3: Thank you, Tanshu. Now I'm more inclined to get that master's. Um, so, <laughs> Just now you mentioned that you joined a public speaking and other activities like that. Do you have yeah. any fond memories from university that doesn't include studying?
2: Well, you see, um, I always have this uh, story at university. I mean, at that time, you know, uh, the father says, study, study, make sure you pass, make sure you pass. But you see, Australia is quite, a, it's, a, it's, as you know, a liberal society. So what I enjoy most is during lunchtime, we sit at what we call the library lawn. And once in a while you have activists, politicians, and speak during lunchtime. So I was used to sit there and see these people, you know, uh, speaking out their thoughts and all that. So I found that very interesting. So it's one of those uh, things I enjoy at university, because I, you know, I'm saying, you know, these people, why are they whinging all the time? What's the complaint? What's the complaint? <laughs> But so subtly it changed my thinking, you know, my, my thinking probably, I'm sure would not be the same with you, but 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 it got me to a stage that I, I, I look at things differently and not from a, just one one angle, right? I don't know if you look at my judgments, which I've written, you probably get a sense of that more liberal than, than, than others. I see. That's very
3: but interesting. But I don't know right? whether it's a
2: good thing or not. <laughs>
3: <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think personally it is because Malaysia is quite not on the liberal side. So having someone who is a dissenting voice is very refreshing. Yeah. But that's very interesting. I don't think Malaysia will ever have people do that. Like you just sit on the lawn and then someone will come and protest something in front of you. So Australia is very interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Because um. Like law students nowadays, they want to be more vocal in like certain cause that they are like insupportive of. But there's a lot of concerns that come into mind as if if they speak too much, they have concerns where is it seditious? Is it too much? Or will people judge you? And if they speak too little. Then people would be saying, Oh, you're a law student. Shouldn't you be a little bit more out there advocate for what you you know supportive of? So this is like a dilemma. I'm not sure, I'm not speaking for all law students, but at least for a law student who's trying to be an an activist. Like, for instance, like recently there's a case where uh family frontiers and these Malaysian mothers, they want to have their overseas born children to be entitled to automatic uh, citizenship. It, it was a struggle for us law students. So whether we want to you know, advocate about it because uh, the appeal, the, the decision of the appeal would be uh, announced really soon in August. So would it be sub judice? So having someone like Tan Sri to be very liberal and to be in supportive of students or anyone else being vocal, that that is pretty great, pretty great for law students at least. <laughs> so uh, moving on, so life as a lawyer. Oh, actually, I just finished my final year. I'm going to take my CLP very soon, and Amber is in her final year. So that oh, okay. means. Pupillage is around the corner <laughs> if we uh, if I <laughs> am to pass. So, uh, we heard a lot about pupillage from our seniors, and sometimes it's quite daunting. So maybe we can hear it from you, Tan Sri. So, can you tell us about your pupillage experience?
2: I, I, I was really lucky in the sense that I, 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 mean, I don't know you, I don't know you guys, know Sanakan Sanakan is still a small town, Are You guys from from where?
1: Um, um, both of us where from are you guys Kike? from? was from KK, uh, but there's KK. a possibility.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what you're saying. Okay, KK is just KK. KK is a is a city to people who live in Serdakan, so everybody knows everybody. I'm fortunate to be chambering with 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 the top lawyer in Sabah. Actually, he was kind enough to guide me, uh, but after a while, he he had trusted me and gave me case to hand to to handle. So I I was in this law firm until. I, I became a judge lah, like. so um, I did a lot of litigation and I enjoyed it. So it, it depends on you whether you're lucky or not to get a get a get a good master or not. I've, I've heard that, uh, horrendous stories about pupil masters uh, uh, situation. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I hope you guys get more, get paid more than me la. I got paid six hundred dollars.
0: Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I hope-
1: Hopefully that, that would be more lah, because I think $600 <laughs> nowadays definitely cannot afford anything. <laughs> um, But that is really great. Like, Is it because, Tan um, Sri, you were in a kind of smaller law firms? Because I've heard from seniors, right? When they were in like a big law firms in KL, they, of course, having a huge name, a huge law firm's name in their CV, but the problem is they felt like they that they weren't learning as much because of course there are other... Pupils with them, so they are only handling like like one tenth of a case, as opposed to what uh, Tan you've mentioned. Like your pupil master actually gave you cases to handle. Yeah. So, do you think um that's kind of like the well, trend? Well, I I, I
2: don't I I don't have any experience uh, as far as Malaya is concerned because as you know, Mm-mm. my I'm practising in East Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, you know, I I, I hear. Good stories about them uh, over there. The big firms over there are not uh, are, are smart people, and actually they they try to get the best people of you, you know. And 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 they headhunt you. And then if they know you're good, you you have you have to work hard, and they'll make you work hard because they rely on 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 your research and everything. I know the senior lawyers; they handle so many cases in court. They don't have the time to to do the research, but they are smart enough that if you give them the right research material, they can put it together and go to court, right? That's why they are fond of getting uh, good uh, chambering students and train them. But of course, some of some of the masters just don't do it. I don't know why. I, I'm, I'm not here to judge. But, uh, but I hear good stories about other chambering students, right? But again, prepare to work hard. Uh, never go home and you probably (laughs) get some uh, smart remark from your master well that's life nothing is easy
0: Mm, right i don't know how many times i
2: got scolded in court by the judge
1: (laughs) (laughs) but uh the table has has turned right you become the judge also so I think that's really good for you. But um, I've also heard like uh, seniors, and what Sri you have mentioned is that you really have to work hard, especially the first few years in your legal career. And uh, they were saying like, oh, actually, uh, or eventually you will forget the concept of weekends, you, you know stay back in the office. So probably students back in the days, they'll be much more willing and determined uh, to do so but students nowadays they focus so much on work-life balance that they hesitate in terms of whether they want to step into uh, the legal practice so probably pupillage is such um, a, a main factor for them to consider like whether they actually want to become associate so uh, that's Sri, how are the first few months of pupillage for you is it like daunting intimidating handling cases all this Actual clients now, instead of us doing problem questions on an exam
2: paper. Oh, definitely daunting. I mean, you know, I have to meet the clients, right? In Sanakan there were the most of the clients speak Chinese, speak, speak Cantonese, and all that, right? Now, I left when I was eleven years old, right? So my Cantonese or Hakka, it's it's not as refined as those people like you guys who know the Chinese language, right? So that was daunting to me. I can't speak English to these people because they wouldn't understand. right? So eventually, um, I, I, I got to learn more how to speak Cantonese and all that, and then it gives a confidence. It, it's, it's something I always say, you have to enjoy your work. If you don't enjoy it, forget about it.? Right? I mean, I mean nowadays, and maybe rightly so, life balance. Why, why should I be in the office uh, over the weekend? It doesn't make sense, right? When I, when, uh, when I was in judiciary and people are working until eight or nine o'clock, I would say, hey, why are you here? Are you, that means you are not very efficient, are you? You should be out of this place by five o'clock. <laughs>
1: Yeah, oh, that, that, is, that made us quite stressed now. Like Amber <laughs> and I would be thinking like, oh, okay, we should leave by five, but we have to complete our work by then. <laughs> but it's okay, it's a it's a good tip. We must bear it in mind. <laughs> Amber, do you have a question for Tan Shri? Yeah, so
3: Tan Shri, like you said just now, you should enjoy your work, right? Uh, I want to know your thoughts on whether you should stay in a, a quote-unquote toxic work environment so for example if your boss is constantly scolding you constantly making you OT without paying you um is it worth it to stay and you know take the beating and learn from it or is it better to leave and find somewhere else that your boss wouldn't treat you as such but you can still learn the same amount of things
2: how do I answer that I mean the way you describe it is it's, it's, it's practically hard labour, you see. <laughs> it's, probably a, it's probably a criminal to treat somebody like that. Uh,
3: that's just but, the exaggerated yeah, version. Uh, yeah.
2: but, but, but I mean, at the end of the day, if, if your master is still treating you after a year of work, I mean, it's not worth it, isn't it? Because you're, you're not enjoying it, right? What's the point? You just go go next door and find another place to work with, right? Uh, I mean, the, um, I mean, this sort of boss, unless they pay you very, very well, right? But that doesn't justify the way he treats you, he or she treats you. I think gone are the days that uh, people should treat people like that. But it's still happening. What can we do? Uh, you just have to uh, maneuver your way around it, right? Put up with it, or you leave. Right? I don't think you need to put up with it with this sort of uh, rubbish.
3: That's very refreshing to hear because a lot of senior lawyers think that this kind of treatment is the norm and that you should just stay and learn from it instead of leaving and thinking you can find somewhere better. But I agree with you, Tan Sri.
2: You see, this sort of thinking is is, is very dangerous. They are actually not living in a world that we're living in. I actually spoke to the the bar president, your bar president over there and some members, you know, um, bullying. It's a no no in Australia, right? You, you have people writing papers that lawyers should not be bullied in the office, should not be bullied in the court, and all that. These sort of things are bullying. And, and so much so that uh, courts like in Australia, they're very conscious of judges bullying, or uh, reversely, or the, the lawyers bullying the, the judge. And the workplace, you know, there are avenues to complain being bullied. Now and and if these big law firms are, are treating the, the chamberlain student or the employees like that, it is pure bullying to me. To me, right? And and I think they should be careful. I mean, uh, no one deserves to be treated the way that uh, you know they are treated by bullies, right? Um, I, I I don't remember me bullying any of my employees. Oh, I mean, I may have shouted. Sh- sh- I, I mean, I'm not the person to shout. but, you know, bullying is a is, is, is thing that, um, that the legal profession should worry about. Uh, you, you, I mean, you heard the case of the uh, bullying in Saba, it's of the doctors, isn't it? The one with Dr. Kumasu said, yeah. they're holding inquiries of whether there was actually bullying or not. I mean, bullying has a psychological effect on the person, right? I think it's a constitutional right, everybody to, to be working in an environment, that is without bullying you know the association actually should seriously look into this but of course uh, they're busy, too busy doing other things that I don't blame them yeah. don't let yourself bullied Always, whenever I, whenever I, I give uh, talks on lawyers appearing in court is the thing is it don't let the judge bully you right but of course it's easy said than done. How do you overcome that? it's overcoming that you have to be prepared yourself. In other words, you you ought to know your case rather than coming to court not knowing the case, right? That's when the, the judge is controlling you and is angry. So don't, don't give that leeway to the judge to bully you. So if you know your your stuff, the judge is not going to bully you. He bully you, he'll, he'll, he'll look like a fool. Serious.
3: So it looks to me like, you need to have a balance between respecting the court and also standing your ground and knowing your stuff, knowing your case like true and true.
2: Exactly, exactly, exactly. I know instances where judges get angry sometimes with reason and sometimes without reasons. And sometimes they they get away with it, right? That that is the sort of stuff that the profession should look at because you're also protecting the, the lawyers. You're also protecting the judge. I mean, you get instance of the lawyers bully the judge, right? So this sort of thing, to me, the legal profession should look into. But again, of course, we always say the excuse is tough up there. You have to, you have to put up with it. I don't think so. Why should we put up with 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 the world that 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 that's being bullied? To me.
1: Yeah. So like we can obviously see that as a young lawyer or like as a new employee per se, there will be various challenges when they step into their working life, be it being bullied or be it mastering what they're currently doing. So with these challenges, uh, Tan Sri, what do you find most challenging in your life as a lawyer in legal practice?
2: In my legal practice, I mean, it's, it's, it's pure hard work right? You can't get away with it. you pure hard work. You don't work, you just get yourself in, in, in problem. Um, the difficulty, of course, is, again, the balanced lifestyle, right? Um, you know, um, my children used to complain about me. I said, uh, of course, you enjoy your work because you come home, you talk about law, you read your law and all that, right? So, you know, but I said, if I don't enjoy it, it's no point doing my job. I suppose the other challenges is when I lose a case and I have to explain it to the to the client, right? Why we lost and all that. But as it goes on, um, you know, you, you just sometimes have to detach yourself uh, from your work, you know, because otherwise I've seen lawyers who are very passionate about their their case and actually quite quite emotional. Uh, in court about it, right? Um, I, I think that should not be the case. You are actually fighting a case for a client and uh, whether you win or not depends on your client. It's not you. I mean, mostly it's what kind of case have your client got? If your client has actually got a hopeless case, <laughs> you know, you can't blame yourself. You don't have to be emotional about it, right? So in any advocacy uh, lectures I give—that's one of the first things I teach. Teach the people: you have to detach. But of course, it's just none.
1: So now I've seen another aspect of challenges, like not just bullied by your employers, or possibly uh, bullied by the court. Now there's a possibility of being bullied by clients. So uh, to all <laughs> exactly, instance, you you, you, know, you
2: will get. <laughs> yes, yes, but that's yeah. like But it then then is a question. Of how you equip yourself mm. to face these challenges,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: And yeah. of course, of course, I've seen lawyers who've left the profession completely, and and enjoying their life, doing as a, as a tour guide, who goes oh. to takes people to the to the jungle, to the mountain, <laughs> and enjoy fresh air. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. To all the listeners right here, right. Uh, When you choose legal profession as something that you really wanted to do, just make sure you are well-equipped, not only with the legal knowledge that you study in class, but also be mentally prepared with all the mental challenges or even physical challenges because you have, like what Tan Sri said, you have to work really hard. Yeah, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, So Tan Sri, I have another question for you. Uh, Can you tell us like a very memorable case that you've handled uh, while practicing
2: as a lawyer? One case which I did not finish was this. Uh, I was preparing a case. Uh, this is a case where the state government owes money to my client. Now, the law says you cannot execute that judgment, right? It's in, in a normal case, if you're fighting a company, you can go and seize the car, wind up the company and all that. If you have a judgment against the government, you cannot do any of that. You cannot bankrupt the government, right? So I had that judgment in my hand for about one year, two years, and my client kept chasing me, where's my money? I said, don't worry, uh, interest running. At that time, eight percent That was quite a lot. So I also felt there was some injustice here. So at that time, the internet was there, right? So I searched, search what in other jurisdictions, what happened, what happened. But I can't find a case to support me in how the post. You know why? Because when you have a judgment against this government, the government usually pays, right? Here, the government did not pay. So in the end, lo and behold, we had a Malaysian case to say that if a minister has a duty to perform, you can go to Kehho Court to get a mandamus to force him to exercise that duty, right? So there is a provision in the Government Proceeding Act that if you serve your judgment on the minister in charge, he said, upon receipt of that certificate, the minister shall pay. Wow, then I said, ah, the minister has a duty to pay, statutory duty to pay. Uh, by Sri Ram about a ministerial duty. So I went to get a main forced the minister to pay. So I'm not executing against the government. I'm just forcing the minister to exercise statutory duty. And lo and behold, it worked. In that case, uh, I then became a JC. Even halfway through the High Court, I became a JC though. My assistant went and argued, lost in the High Court, won in the Court of Appeal, Right the Court of Appeal says, "Yes, you have to pay because statutory uh, our statute duty you have to pay." and went to the federal court, and the federal court affirmed it. So today, that decision, if I may, takes some pride in it, because everybody is using it to force the government in, in the days in, in nowadays you get a judgment against the government, the government don't pay. What do you do? So at the end of the, day, actually, I told my assistant, I, uh, I, I don't think he listened to me because he, he won the case, but I said. You, you, you actually don't have to say much. You just get up and say, look, if the court says the government doesn't have to pay, okay, I just tell the foreign investor in the Malaysia that our legal system, our judicial system says if the government uh, loses a case and gets judgment against them, they don't have to pay. It, it just cannot be, right? So that was one case which, which today I, I sort of cling to, like, right? So the, the other case was um, is in a session's court. A fishing boat was caught in waters, uh, the exclusive economic zone. Every country has a, a 200 nautical miles exclusive economic zone so that you can go out there to fish and all that. So this um, Filipino fishing boat was caught in an area where they're overlapping, overlapping Oh, see, so Philippines claimed that, Malaysia claimed that. So it's an overlapping claim. So they were charging KK, right? And um, I call a professor as as an expert witness, what should we do here, right? Uh, It's overlapping. We should not uh, find these people guilty because as far as they're concerned, they had the license to fish because Philippines gave the license to fish because it's within the exclusive economic zone, right? So that was one argument I said, uh, I used because the professor says, uh, said in these circumstances, nobody has a claim to that land, to that sea, right? So you should, they should be discharged. But then I found a section in the penal code, section 79, I think section 79, I'm correct or not, where they say, ignorance of the fact is an excuse. Well, we all know ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? So I use ignorance of the law as an excuse. What is that ignorance? Here, the Filipino guys, Filipino fishermen, really did not know that it's Malaysian waters. They had the license, right? And Malaysia has never claimed that sea because nobody can claim because it's overlapping. So the, the Sessions Court judge agreed with me and let them out. I had 49 fishermen camping in, in uh, and they were staying in a in a shop house in Innanam right they were here for about six months cannot go home. Now this created a lot of uh, uh, headlines um, uh, even the people in parliaments asking well how come the lawyers defending these people we are losing our sovereignty and all that. Um, of course the government appealed but at that time was the president of uh, Philippine rang uh, Dr. Mahathir to tell them, uh, said, look, why, why, you know, they got off, you should not appeal. If you appeal, they're going to remain there and all that. And in fact, one of the fishermen died, had a heart attack while in KK, right? So it's become, uh, I don't know if you Google it or not, uh, you will find all this in the newspaper. At that time was, was uh, big news in KK and in Philippine. So that was, uh, I got them off, and then in the end, Mahathir withdrew, told the AG to withdraw the appeal. So they are allowed to let go. So uh, army plane came to pick them all up, and um, I was asked to go on the plane. I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. In fact, uh, and then a week after that, I went to Philippines. of course, got a hero's welcome from the people who... who, who, And then of all time, of all that, I I uh, got a letter from the foreign minister to thank me for my thing. But I was sort of branded as a traitor for taking up the case. <laughs> but,
1: but at no, least it leaves a very huge impact, and I think it's something uh, so nice uh, to know uh, reminisce yeah. back. At,
2: at, at that time, I was sort of up and coming lawyers, mm-hmm. right? So after I won the case, I think that, you know, I felt more confident in going to court and uh, people were asking me for opinions and all that. So I always tell lawyers, you know, you come a time that you, you will cross that line that you are not more, no more a, a junior lawyer. You will watch. So, so don't be afraid to take hard cases, challenging cases. Uh, to what uh, You never know. You never know. You, you, maybe you're fine. Everybody was told me I'm going to lose, you know. Just maybe a fine and go home. So um, that those, those are the two of my memorable cases. If it's memorable.
0: Yeah,
1: it is. It is memorable. Even now, yeah. I'm thinking about it, and it's kind of like motivating me that you know, I'm going to be there someday. So uh, yeah, good, good. thanks for that. Yeah, thanks for that,
3: Tan Yeah, um, I just want to say, hearing you talk about your own cases is very inspiring, and um. Yeah, honestly, if you were a lecturer in my university talking about cases, I'll be very, very interested. (laughs) I'll be paying attention the whole time. Yeah. Um, So to reel it back into something you said just now on the topic of detaching yourself from uh, the client and the case at hand, uh, do you think that it is good to have some kind of interpersonal relationship with your client? So for example, maybe when you have a trial and then you're having lunch with your client, um, do you think it's appropriate to talk about things outside of the trial, like um, what your favorite restaurant is to go to and just have that kind of not so surface level relationship with them? Do you think that it is beneficial uh, for the trial or just in general for uh, to gain the trust of your client?
2: Yeah, I think to to, to gain the trust of your client, right? Um, I mean, the clients, you can say, to a certain extent, his life is in your hand, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're dealing with a criminal case, actually the life is in, is in your hand. Yeah. So it's it's hard to detach. And, and and the trouble with is with our society, we have to go and look for clients, right? And we look for clients, they become your friends, yeah. right? And your friend says, I've got this problem. Are you gonna mm-hmm. tell them go next door? No, of course you don't, because you have to you have to get the money to pay your employees right it's really a challenge so so you you have to try very hard to detach it because uh, i mean he said that none but even especially when i I have close friends my clients and we go to court uh lucky in most of uh, my friends case we i won but sometimes you know okay how do you explain to them appeal? you know and you can't say appeal you win for sure right and uh but but I think with the experience dealing with it, you you find the proper balance. I'm sure. Mm,
3: I see. So, do you think that there are some things that are completely off the table you cannot discuss with your clients, or is there is anything up for grabs, and then you can just kind of gauge um, throughout your time with the client, like what you can and what you cannot discuss? Because I'm really interested in this because. I personally feel like there should be some level of professionalism per se. Like, I wouldn't want to be too close to the client to the extent where they know things about my personal life, like who are my parents or things like that. So, yeah, I just want to know your thoughts about this.
2: Well, um, you may get away with it. You live in a city, right? But if you, if you practice in KK and, or, or anywhere in Sabah, the client will know your parents for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no two way about it, right? Right. There's no two uh, way about it. Uh, but but you're you're right. Of course, the ideal thing is not to be too attached to your client, right? Because uh, you can tell your client's not going to tell you things that that he doesn't want other people to know, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Right. And and how it affects the case, but but this this again is my child. I mean, I can only tell my experience about that, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: for example, handling a, a criminal case, a, a murder case, right? Um I would, I, you know, you tell me the story, right? And then then I would, I I just tell them, look, this is the position. This is how you 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 can get out of it or whatever. Uh yes, you you stab the guy, uh, what's the provocation? What's your reason and all that? I mean, there's no point saying, oh, I can get you by saying by saying that you did not do it, right? Same in civil matters, maybe because of the way I practice, I I, I did not earn a lot of money. But I, I I look at it, look at the facts objectively and tell them, look, you don't have a case, right? Um, my view is, is to, to, to settle it, uh, rather than going for a protracted litigation at the mm-hmm. end of it, you're going to pay a lot of yeah. money, right? Um, of course, that's not all the case. Sometimes it's 50-50, then you just take up the challenge and all that, right? Um, with that, with that sort of approach, I had, I, 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 I did not have a lot of sleepless nights. You know, in the sense that I know where my case is going because I've got the facts right, and uh, that's how it is. I mean, I have never told my client, even though I think, yeah, we'll win. Don't worry, hundred percent sure. <laughs> who says this? Yeah. I, I tell you a story. I tell you a story every time I feel very confident in winning the case. Turned I, out I, I lost. I lost. And, and you say, How did the judge come to this conclusion? <laughs> right? So, but that's the reality because you probably didn't see something that the judge saw. That's mostly the case. Right? I mean, everyone is different. Right? I, I, I'm not saying that the judge is not competent far from it. I'm just saying that you see a problem, if there's a problem in front of two persons, they see it differently. That's a reality of life, so that that's that's my approach. You don't have a case, uh, you know. I'll tell you what you know. What the options are?
3: Yeah, I think I agree with your approach too. It's good to be realistic rather than give your client false hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah, your yeah. your time as a lawyer was very interesting, but I think your time in the judiciary is uh, <laughs> even more interesting. Uh, so do you want to talk us through how you came to think about even going into the judiciary, the kind of process that you have to uh, go through to get there? Because I personally have no idea how you get from being a lawyer to being a judge. So it'd be really nice to know your insight on this.
2: Okay, before I became a, a judge, uh, I've been in practice for twenty five years. Right? I, I practiced in Australia for three years. It was getting to a stage that um, I suppose you can call it mundane. You know, sanakan how big is sanakan. You know, uh, I, I was fortunate enough. Uh, then the last Chief Justice, uh, Don Richard, right, was uh, I knew him from practice. Um, he actually was staying in a Condo complex as I was, so when he was judge in Senakam, I was the lawyer. So, so I got to know him quite well, and then we, and then he became the court of Appeal judges and all that. Now in those days, they don't have the judicial appointment com- uh, commission, right? So uh, where now you have to go go for interviews and all that. In those in my days, it's a tap on the shoulder, right? And what happened was that uh, I remember this quite quite clearly. Um, Actually, I was playing golf, I think. And then I got a phone call from John Richard. Hey, are you interested (laughs) to be a judge? I said, well, if if you think I'm qualified, uh, okay. And that was the end of the matter, right? So I think it took about two to three years that it came through. It came through, I got a uh, phone call to say, hey, uh, you've been appointed a judicial missioner. I said, okay, thank you very much. So, I mean, that's how the process went through. Now, of course, the chief justice then um, had a chat with me, right, asking me about this or that. That's how it was done nowadays, right? Uh, because I'm not saying that that is a bad way, but that's how it's done. And that's how it's done in most countries, actually. you know, the, Surely the, the judges would know who, who is competent, who's not competent from the provision, just tap on the shoulder and ask. So, that was in 2005. So I was posted to Kuching for three years. Uh, the first, I, be, I was a judicial for fifteen months, and the amazing journey was that after eight months, the Tun becomes the Chief Judge of Sabah Sarawak, and he knew me well, and I knew him well, and he said, "Hey, we need to digitize the whole system of the courts, All right?" So. He gave me the task and he introduced me to one person, uh, called Teo, who is the CEO of the uh, Sarawak GLC, that deals with computerization. Mm-hmm. So from 2006, right, we started um, how to uh, digitize uh, the, the the whole menu system. Uh, we started with the, the sort of what we call the hardware first. So in 2007, now you know Sabah and Sarawak, right? If you want to go to Sandakan from KK, you have to fly in, all right? Right. The roads is not usable, right? If I have to go to Labuan, I have to fly. Uh, well, fly to Labuan or go to Ta'au. So, and we were thinking, hey, why are people wasting a lot of time? This is also applies to Sarawak. If you go from Miri to Kuching, you you have to fly. So, with now of course you 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 and I on Zoom and all that. Uh, so we introduced video conferencing in 2007. So we had court sittings via video conferencing in 2007. Wow. And at that time, uh, I, I was actually very fond of this because I managed to name all the course Technology Court in English. In English, not, not, uh, not, not technology. Right, uh, this uh, yeah. in, in, in the course in, in Sarawak, I is. If I go there, I said technology court, uh, and that's we did all this in 2007. And and I had to market this to the lawyers. You see, lawyers have this mindset oh, I want to fly to Sanakanva the night before. Yeah. I can have one night before, I have my seafood, I have business class flying there, and all that. So I had to look. You have to embrace this. We're going to save you time and money for your client. You don't have to fly in. You just turn up in the KK court and the judge in Sanakan will hear you. Right? And the other lawyers from Sanakan can just go to court. Or if the lawyers are from Taba and one from KK and the judge in Sanakan, you don't have to fly. You just go to court. Right? So each court in Sabah and had the technology court. So, so that was the first sort of uh, big thing that happened to Shiri. So everybody was a bust. So thereafter, the chief judge says, hey, we have to have e-filing. Like, what is e-filing? You know, internet is bad. You know, you cannot how can you load a whole stack of you know documents and all that the in the your 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 system will break down well anyway you know i mean if, if you know the then she justice he's got he's just one track he is actually to me uh he's a visionary not that i want to butter him up i, I always you know but he's a vision he knew we had to digitize the system and he knew <laughs> that i i go to australia quite often because my some of my kids are there he said david go to New South Wales Supreme Courts and learn about the system. So, of course, he had the contact. So I went there on my own. Huh? I was on holiday and I had to go to court and work for a day or two. So, of course, at that time, that's where I got the video system. Because in, in then they do the bail and the whatever. They don't take the prisoner from the prison. The prisoner will remain in prison and do the video conferencing from the court. So that was our first idea. Now the second thing is e-filing, and then I went to went to the court and uh, they explained to me the the beauty of, of e-filing. Now you you'll be surprised. He gave me a stick. Hundred percent of the case file will eventually be dealt with by judgment and default of parents. About ninety percent. Now. Both of you probably will not even remember. In those days, if you want a judgment in default in a session called a magistrate court, you have to turn up to court to say, I have served the summons. No defense has been uh, entered. Please have my judgment in default. And the lawyers will spend you know, half hour in court and say, wow, I've done a lot of work today. i got two judgments in default. Fantastic. I've done, done a lot of work, you know. Then, you know what they did in New If you, If someone uh, does not enter an um, appearance or default, whatever, you get a certificate of non-appearance, which they do now, huh, and file the court, and the court will accept them, and then just send back the judgment and default to you without any appearance in court. And we are talking about 90% of the case. You imagine the time they save. So I asked them how did you do the digital signature and all that? They showed to me. I mean, nowadays you ask me digitally sign, I can do it. In those days, what is digital signature and all that? So I got the thing, I came back, I I presented this to him, and then and on both things, he got. Chief Justice then from uh, uh, Chief Justice and then the chief, chief Judge of Malaya come to Kuching and I presented to them right how much time you save. so everybody was on board of course I have to explain that huh? I was only doing for Sabah and Sarawak right? because there's two two systems uh, so the next thing was e-filing after there was e-filing how do you get lawyers to e-file I can I, t- I, I tell you girls I was a salesman. I went to every town. I went. I started in Kuching, where the lawyers would come and call. I said, you must e-file. They said, what is e-file? And all that, hey, you convert this to PDF and then you just send it. In those days, it was by email and we receive it. But we got smarter, of course. We opened a portal and all that. Now you fight through there with everything. And you pay that as well. I can remember one lawyer. says, I'm not going to do it. I don't have any computer. My internet is bad. I'm sorry. You don't want to do it. That's your problem, right? So these lawyers have come back to me. I mean, before I retire, I said, thank God for that. Now they don't even go. They can find the documents anywhere in the world, literally anywhere in the world, right? For four to five months, I went to Miri. I went to Cebu. I went to KK. I went to Stawa. I went to Sarawak talking to the lawyers, selling them the ideas, you must do this, you must do this. And eventually after three, two to three years, everyone is on board, right? So I don't know if you have a chance to see the uh, our, our East Malaysian system, it is fantastic. So that actually, if you ask me, my memorable things about the, my days in, as a judge, that is one of the things that I, I really, uh, really happy and proud of to be part of the team in digitizing the, the whole court system. Uh, we, we, the East Malaysian Judiciary uh, IT's uh, thing is way, way ahead of uh, any jurisdiction. And I, I told you earlier that uh, I was an auditor, right? Now, with this system, uh, West Malaysia doesn't have, we allowed lawyers. To access to that file. For example, if you've got to start a court case, there's a the file in there. You find everything to that. So we allow the lawyers to access. Why do I allow? Because the, I will, i would will like the lawyers to audit our system. Audit in the sense, why is my case so late in fixing for, for hearing? Uh, hey, you haven't got my document. So there is someone auditing our system. So that's why in East Malaysia. Lawyers can access that file. And the lawyers involved in the case can access that file. So uh, they don't allow over there, as I understand, as well. No. So before I left the judiciary, I introduced artificial intelligence. How do I use it? I in, um uh, for sentencing, for sentencing, right? Uh, there are two offenses which we had rape and, and uh, possession of drugs. So we got all the decisions and fit it into the, uh, the AI machine, right? And that AI machine would assist the magistrate or sessions court in determining what kind of sentence to give. That is cases where the accused plead guilty, right? So when I introduced that, everybody is, I mean, Namsta, how could you have a robot judge? How could you have a machine telling what to judge? I said, listen... It is not a robot judge. It is a system which actually assists the magistrate in the quickest possible way, what kind of thing? Without that, you have to look at the law books, you have to look at the precedents, or that. What this is, is a data-driven machine, right? Anyway, it's working very well and uh, it's improving. This is one thing actually very relevant to you guys. I am sure in, in 20 years' time, you know, artificial intelligence is... Is second nature to you people. Seriously. You know, uh, I mean, artificial intelligence is still, still a new thing to me. I'm trying to learn every day, right? You know, when, when I was doing all this marketing about the e-filing system back in 2007, I always have this mantra, the future is here. Not the future is coming, the future is here. So we have this mindset. So I'm sure the legal profession for you guys will be different you'll be more more assisted by the technology that you have, right? So that thing, I'm able to help the court in in sort of uh, be with it, so to speak. So I'm very happy with that. I'm always, whenever I have a chance, I always tell this story to everybody.
1: (laughs) It is such a milestone. Like even like researching, I believe back in the days, they weren't, platforms like CLJ Law, LexisNexis, everything, you have to find journals and all. Now we have the benefit of the internet. Mm-hmm. And then not to mention, uh, Tan Sri, you mentioned artificial intelligence. So uh, is there a possibility that a few decades from now, it will be completely artificial intelligence and then like maybe there's no need for a lawyer, maybe there's no, like, no need for a judge per se. Would, did you see that happening in the future? Mm-hmm.
2: Not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, you see, you see, you see places like I think Brazil or other countries where the backlog is so bad, mm-hmm. right? Okay, you maybe robot judge is not does not give uh, pure justice as we understand it. Okay, now I know this country are using these robot judges for claims less than ten thousand right so well either you let the case rot for Mm. 20 years in the court system or you get a ai machine to be the the judge right Mm. for small claims this is happening around the world Mm. it's not what i'm advocating but this is happening right Mm. why is this happening hey what is it justice if someone sits there and wait for 20 years to try to have a case heard in court for a claim of 20000 It cannot be right, right? So as we go on, surely the AI intelligence improves as it goes on, right? I was involved in a a webinar the other day. The courts are deciding whether or not an AI machine is entitled uh, to be treated as an inventor as far as patent is concerned patent rights, mm. right? If you get an AI machine to create something, can you patent that creation, mm. right? Uh, in the first court of instance in Australia, the judge says yes, but it was reversed later. But Canada, I, I think it says, yes, artificial intelligence machine can be treated as an inventor. It may not be a human, Right. And that's how so how smart our AI machine is. God knows what's gonna happen in, in, in 20 years' time. I mean, who would imagine I could be talking to you on Zoom free of charge for so long? Yeah, you know true, what I'm true. saying? I mean, I, I don't know you, you heard of Metaverse or not.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Metaverse. Okay. This is you know why Facebook was changed to Word? Meta? Ah. Okay, right. I see, I see. It's uh, virtual Virtual reality,
1: reality. yeah.
2: Right now, I don't know how it works, but they are saying that if you want to attend a concert in London, right, you can stay wherever you put on your goggles and you're there. The reality is so real that you are probably you are you feel like like you're in London, right? Uh, But anyway. It's probably out of my reach in my lifetime, but you guys, I I am sure you will see the improvement in technology. You get what I'm saying? Right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, coming back to the court. The the court, actually, um, the last thing I I, I asked them to do is, you know, all the running down cases, the running down cases, people getting hurt by accidents and all that. There are a lot of claims in court. Mm-hmm. You know, you were, you were hit by a car and all that, right? They're supposed to collect all this data into the machine. Let's say you've got a broken arm or your broken shoulder. The courts have, have records of how much award you should get and all of that, right? I said, I envision today that there will be a chaos outside the courtroom, right? People coming to court to say, okay, I was involved in an accident. I had a broken arm or a broken hip how much would I get? The machine should tell you, okay, the court will probably award you 300000 right? With that knowledge, right, the insurance company or the other side of course would no doubt rather settle this matter than to buy in court. I have seen cases that are stuck in court for two to three years because of the appeals process and all that. Why the victim is at home not getting a cent right so you see how how technology can help to improve the judicial system and the livelihood everybody if you have an ai machine that hey this is the amount you're gonna get the insurance people or the payer would think oh well we pay better negotiate with the victim and see how we can resolve this so i i hope to see that in my lifetime but other things uh, maybe not.
0: Uh,
1: okay, okay. That's um, nice to know. At least we won't get unemployed very soon anyway. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so uh, Tashri, your life as a judge. So, what are the immediate differences did you find being a judge compared to being a lawyer?
2: It's a different lifestyle. Different mm-hmm. lifestyle. Uh, in the sense that, well, we should be lonely people because we're not supposed to, to socialize with, with other people. Um, we just have to we have to behave ourselves. When we talk in public, you know, it should not be. I mean, I have to give up my days of uh, shouting at the top of my voice on a golf course when I uh, miss something or, or saying words that it should not be said and all that. I have to give that up. So uh, so it's a different lifestyle. And, and it ought to be a different lifestyle because... Uh, Being a judge, to me, is a huge responsibility. Uh, People come before you with a dispute and they expect you to give a decision that's stand up to reason, right? And the only way a judge can do that is to work hard. I mean, we we hardly have any weekends. Uh, I remember once somebody asked me, uh, how's life, Judge? Uh, I said, friend, a judge has no life. So, so that that's that's how it is uh, for most judges that I know. And and the pressure is there. Not seen, but the pressure is there, right? You 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 turn up to work, yes, you you got you got assistant helping you, but at the end of the day you get up on the on the bench and you listen to people, and then you have to Absorb it and then come to a decision. So i i I found that challenging. I found that challenging, and uh, and there's that there, that there, that there times where you handle case which you think that you can shape the law, you know, and that that's that's exciting. Uh, so I have no complaint. I can only say that I've been blessed to be able to be, to serve on the bench.
3: That's very nice. I just want to mention that I didn't know that we already had e filing back in 2007. No,
0: <laughs> I thought,
3: yeah, I, I actually thought it was something that only came about when COVID hit. And yeah, so I'm actually quite shocked that it, it's actually been around for a while already. And the only, video oh, oh,
2: oh, oh, of- only in our Sorry. states, okay, <laughs> only on oh, the eastern oh. states. This is oh, okay.
0: only in the wow. eastern states
2: say? they only came on board uh, at least five to six years after us. And they had, they had a more, uh, well, not a sophisticated system that we had, right? Um, wow. The, the, that, is the truth. that is the truth. That is the truth.
1: Well, very empowering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, so much so we, we have an apps. You, you can download the apps and really... Uh, I always do, when I was doing this presentation, I always do the, you know, I show the lawyer uh, on the beach sunbathing and sending his documents through his labs <laughs> in, yeah. in, in the Caribbean back to KL. You know, so, so I mean, we have that. I mean, uh, the apps were developed about just before I retire, four years, four years ago. And I was mm-hmm. very excited about all this, you know, imagine I can you know, uh, get all this. I mean, now uh, my, my daughter is practicing there. I mean, he. he I said, hey. Uh, he tells me I can uh, when somebody files, he can look at the submission of the other side. Yeah. Just go to the file. Let's go to the to the folder in the in the system.
3: I I've used the High Court website. Uh, during my internship, I've had the opportunity to you know like send documents to be sealed by the court and everything. So I've had a look at what the website is like, and I'm actually very impressed that we have this kind of technology. I don't know, maybe, I, I guess I'm part of the technological era, but I was still very, very impressed by how, how structured everything was, how efficient everything was when it's all online. Um, yeah. Michelle, have you had the
1: opportunity to use the website? Unfortunately, it's not me i'm seeing someone else doing it oh i So see. Yeah, yeah which yeah.
2: website you're talking about the sabah one or the just one or yeah like uh,
1: the sabah high court
3: website oh okay
2: oh great. yeah yes yeah. we're very organized
1: mm-hmm.
3: yeah and so we have the pioneer of that here which is very uh <laughs> a great honor to be in your presence yeah. Maybe you should they should add that to your introduction as well, pioneer yeah. of a digital high court or sabbat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: No, but uh, I really enjoy doing something about that. Right?
3: Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's very beneficial. Thank you for that.
2: No, it's yeah. a, 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 another system is that you I, I don't know, like when you become chairman students, you'll probably be given a job of compiling the record repeal and all that. Right.
3: Yeah. Yes, so, I've done so, that.
2: Yes. You've done that, right? The, the system that they have in, in, in the high court in the courts here is that you can migrate everything and the system will compile the record of appeal for you. The notes, the proceedings, the judgment, it'll all come out by pressing Yay. the button. It's all there. The system yeah. is there. I hope they're still doing it. That was created just before I left. So in other words, mm. let's say you have an appeal from the Sessions Court to the High Court, right? The notes of proceedings should be in the system, right? The yeah. notice of appeal be there. Your memorandum of appeal are there. So if you're compiling the whole thing, you just go to the file folder, click it more, the system will compile for you and even mark, uh, page paginate for you.
3: So convenient now. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: it's
1: very nice to use. What are the like, skills or like certain traits that one should have to persevere in this noble profession, whether it be a lawyer or a judge? Leah, what kind of traits that we, a student or anyone should have?
2: Uh, listen, to listen, listen to people. I mean, even as a lawyer, you you, you you, will come across different views. So being able to listen and analyze, uh, to me, it, it's, it's a good trick to have because you're able to analyze, you're, only people can analyze when you listen properly, right? If you don't listen properly, you're not going to analyze. You're going to analyze a, a different story than what comes up on the other side. So, I mean, listening and analyzing to me is a, a sort of a trick uh, to, to have. Lah. But again, just, how do I put it? Be happy with what you do. Lah. I mean, even though uh, uh, there are times that we, I complain about uh, how, how hard we have to work as a judge, but at the end of the day, when I stand on a bench and the adrenaline comes and it's okay, I I I I'm here to do something and I, I need to do it properly. Right. Uh, and and I always say, I always say, uh, say, you know, as as a judge, you cannot demand respect. You can only command respect. In other words, you know, people respect you because of what you did, not because you tell them to respect you. <laughs> Simple as that. And that can be done through your own deeds. Right? That's why I try very hard not to scold people in court. (laughs) Uh,
3: So now we're just going to move on to the general questions. In your speech for the opening of the legal year in 2020, you mentioned Article 26, para four of the report of the Intergovernmental Committee, in Uh, which it is stated that the domicile of the Supreme Court should be in Kuala Lumpur, but at least one sitting judge should be one with Bornean judicial experience when the court is hearing a case arising in a Bornean state. Uh, but then the federal court, I think in 2017, they ruled that this was not needed in a case called Karuntum because it was not codified in the Malaysian agreement. How do you think this decision affects Sabahan cases and do you think it is unjust to Sabahans?
2: Well, if uh, well, I'm glad you brought that up. I did not know, but but you knew that I've written a dissenting judgment. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Um, you see, if this is argued now, it's differently. As 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 you know, our constitution was amended uh, last year in December, where they brought in the Malaysian agreement, the, the word Malaysian agreement into, uh, into the constitution. So, so to mm-hmm. speak, the Malaysian agreement has given constitutional life in other words to me when someone is interpreting the constitution now you have to look at what the malaysian agreement says mm-hmm. right before that myself i had to say to interpret the constitution you must look at the malaysian agreement to give it the meaning that it should have right
0: yeah.
2: right so that was uh, my way of interpreting the constitution, right? So now I think my way of thinking is, can be said, if I may put it this way, it's been legalized, so to speak, it's constitutionalized because the constitution mm-hmm. now refers to the Malaysian agreement. So in the corporate report, in the intergovernment in the report, they talk about having the presence of a Borneo judge, right? So I then then I said, look, because this that is the intention. And why is that intention? Because, for example, our land laws are different to Malaya. Our mm. native customary laws are different to Malaya. I have said many times uh, with uh, my brothers from Malaya, they will lean over to me. Hey, I really don't know anything about this. Uh, you have to. That is the reason why we must have. Uh, a presence of a one of a new judge in matters that, you know, when when the Court of Appeal of the Federal Court sits in Saban I'm grateful that the, the Chief Justice now has made that a policy, right in fact, I was hoping they can change the Court of Judiciary Act to say that they have that, but now uh, the CJ has uh, make sure it's done uh, it is important in fact, that speech during that, I mentioned a case uh, a land case right about indivisibility right the word indivisibility is not mentioned in our land ordinance
0: yeah.
2: right but there's a section 88 which says uh, you don't have an interest unless you're registered right but in a case which i decided was that even though it does not have the word indivisibly answer that it is a torrent system what is a torrent system torrent system is a registration system Right. Yeah. If you don't have, if you don't have indivisibility, then what's the registration? Right? Yeah. So I, I, so I said, even though the word indivisibility doesn't appear in our land code, it, it is implied. It must be in our land code because it's a torrent system. Yeah. Right. But lo and behold, when they got to the federal court, the federal court says because the word. Indivisibility is not that there's no indivisibility concept in Sabah. You know what the ramification is? Somebody 20 years down the line will say, hey, somebody forged my signature, right? And they have about four or five transactions already, and I'm now on the land, and this guy now comes up. Oh, because there's no indivisibility, all this transfer title after that fraud has now now and void and goes back to that person 20 years ago hey i was not a party to the fraud Mm. right i gave that as an example was that that panel were all non-sabahans they did not understand the working of the land ordinance in sabah Mm. if i were practicing now i'd be i'd be horrified how do i tell the bank that you may have a registered charge on your land, but if somebody discovered fraud, what happened 10 years ago, you have a charge. That is the ramification of that decision. And and that's what I mentioned there in my speech. That provision that uh, there should be a judge of Bonilla experience on an appellate panel should be made in the law. It is true. And, and when you come to native customary right, judges with respect from, the, from Malaya have no experience.
0: Yeah.
2: When I went to Kuching, at that time I have, I have no experience as well, but I served there for three years. You know what I did? I deliberately went into the longhouse and go in there and see how these people live. Right? And I went to a kampong. I said, um, How long have you been staying here? Oh, generation, hundreds of years. Do you have a title to your land? No. I said, no. Then, then comes the concept of native customary right. What is native customary right? Hey, they've been staying there for years. You have to recognize it, right? But there's one case where they said, because it's not in the native customary right, or that, that uh, practice by the native is not uh, in the statue, it is not recognized. Mm. Right? And not, not that actually another Korintung case is another mm. case. It cannot be. Right? If, if, if you, the, the law says uh, you must recognize the culture, the custom of the natives, right? That custom is recognized by the native itself. But just because it is not recognized in a local statue, you cannot wipe up the Native person, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To me, that, that, that's a wrong thinking. And, and, and unless you live here and understand how the Native live, uh, you know, I, I participate in a lot of uh, mobile courts where we go into the uh, jungles, take eight hours drive, you go in there, and you live with them, you won't understand mm. what's all this. So uh, I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate to be able to uh, at least spend some time with these people, and uh, actually understand their culture, right? I mean, the Penangs, the Penangs. I don't know you heard of in Sarawak. They had mm. really uh, just uh, move around. You know, some of them have to walk two hours to go to school, mm. in the jungle.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, we have stories in Sabah so on, But but at least I'm fortunate. At least. Uh, Myself, I have an understanding of the problems that the the, the natives face, and I, I think not, not that we prejudice our mind when dealing with this case. It actually uh, gives us the knowledge of it. I mean, if you know something about something, I think you you come to a, a more uh, reason decision yes. uh, of that of that dispute.
3: That's a very good perspective to have. I don't think a lot of lawyers can say that about themselves. Like they would do this kind of thing just to gain even more insight into the problem at hand. So yeah, yeah it's very inspiring. Um, I think the case that you mentioned just now is called Borneo Housing Mortgage Finance.
2: Oh, that, that one is the start of the problem.
3: Oh, I see. Okay.
2: <laughs> Where they say is uh, Sama has... Uh, hybrid i think or whatever is. yeah
3: uh
2: hybrid torrent system yeah that was written by a judge well respected and mm. i know him i used to brief him i said what is a hybrid torrent system <laughs> is it either it is a torrent system or not torrent system yeah right and if you study law torrent system is a registration system right
0: yeah
2: and because of that case the Supreme Court, uh, the Federal Court later, I think under the case of Xia, somebody, which, which is the case I was in, I was the High Court judge. There, uh-huh. there it expressly decided that it is no indivisibility. In other words, they're even, not even a hybrid torrent system. It is a completely, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah non-registration hybrid system and uh, non-registration torrent system I don't think there's a, I don't, torrent system because I study uh, law in Australia mm. and they have a torrent system and what I understand is registration is the key yep. you don't register you have no interest so if right. I have registered in Sabah land ordinance under the present law it doesn't mean you hold it forever yeah. Right? There's no indivisibility. To me, that was a classic case when there had no Borneo input in that one. Mm-hmm. When Doon when, when Richard was sitting in the High Court Judge, he expressly held, because of Section 88, there is indivisibility concept in our Sabah land ordinance. But now, no more. And I'm trying to get the State government to change the land law. Mm. I don't know. At least Sarawak has the word indivisibility.
3: Yeah, ours doesn't at all, right?
2: I yeah. tried to put it in through 88, section 88, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't work.
3: Yeah, things still a long way to go. But uh, yeah, yeah. actually, the Borneo housing finance case, I, I learned when I was in third year. So actually I would love to hear uh, your input about indivisibility, like compared to West Malaysia. But I think maybe that's for another time, another webinar maybe. But uh, I have another general question for you. It's kind of one of the last questions that we want to ask for now. Um, could you maybe share with us your life after retiring from the judiciary? Like what's your favourite pastimes and things like that?
0: Well... After I
2: retired, the COVID came. Oh,
0: <laughs> so I see. two years.
2: So two years, I uh, was like uh, lockdown,
0: mm.
2: <laughs> and all that. So practically two years. You know, I mean, when when the, when when the economy wasn't open, everybody was the same on the same boat, Right. Yeah. Then, then of course, the Zoom came in, right? Everybody. Was working through Zoom and all that, and okay. I, I am again very lucky and blessed that people still uh, engage me as a consultant on on legal problems. Um, in my consultancy work, um, you know, I uh, apart from telling them what needs to be done and all that, I if they're going for a trial, I go through the process of. Uh, playing the judge or playing the advocate in cross-examining the witnesses and all that, and prepare the witness mindset, and mm-hmm. all that. And that. I've been involved in those things for the last few years. And um, and part of that, I make sure that I have my time for my golf, mm-hmm. at least uh, two to three times a week. Otherwise, yeah. I would be I would be very boring. But um, I, I've been kept busy, so I'm I'm, I'm lucky. So uh, arbitration is also, uh, people have been asking me to do arbitration, so I'm also uh, lucky and blessed with that. Apart from that, that's about it. Um, I still enjoy my golf, I still enjoy my walking, so that's about it.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your retirement, Tan Sri. Uh, That's all the questions that I have for you. I'll pass the time to Michelle.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, so thank you, Tan Actually, I just have one more question left. So, like Tan Sri, do you want to give uh your words of advice, words of encouragement for our new upcoming lawyers? Actually, to uh both Amber and I here, <laughs> hopefully, will be an upcoming lawyer soon.
2: So I'm sure you, you two will be. You see, okay, going back, going back to my high school days. All right, English was one of our mother language. So we had to make the extra f- effort uh, to master the English language, right? Now, when I did Form 6, I don't know what's the equivalent here, like, it's pre-U or whatever, but after Form 6, you get, you get a university. I, I had to uh, do subjects to make sure I get the marks to, to get a university because you have to have certain marks in university. So I did first level Latin. First level English, first level ancient uh, uh, history, and then my maths and science is the lowest 2S and 2SO, right? So I was never good at, at science and math. But I got, got through them, and, and the teacher who taught me told me and, 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 told, and told his uh, fellow priest, he said, uh, This David Wong, he's not actually not a first level standard. But he works hard. He works hard, right? He works hard. Um, he did Latin to improve his English because Latin is a, a language where you can improve your English, the tense and all that, right? Imagine a Chinese doing Latin. It, it, it's 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 a useless language actually. Nobody uses unless you're unless you're saying mass or whatever. So the moral of the story is, for me, was that. No, you're not a bright student, but I know you work hard and you get through. And that is the mindset that I have all through my life. Nothing comes easy, but if you work hard, it never fails. Right? You may not attain it, but but the fact that you work hard for it, that already is a success. So that's a story I I tell every law student, right? Uh, I can tell you. All my marks in, in in universities, except for one or two decisions, all those are just credit, right? And um, I just work hard when I do. Uh, same thing when I was uh, practicing. Uh, before I go to court, I make sure I work hard and, you know, uh, especially I can tell you the story. If I were uh, doing a presentation, I would be practicing in, in the in the library, going through the full speech and all that before I'm going to attend. Those are the sort of preparation you have to make. And uh, that's that to me is my uh, mantra like you can call it, work hard. Working hard never fails, okay?
1: <laughs> yes, yes.
3: So uh, thank you very much, Tan Sri. Thank you, Tan Sri, for chatting with us, taking the time out of your day for this.
0: Uh, oh, we're yeah. very
3: grateful. <laughs> That's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for listening to Alibi, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our special podcast series with former judges. And we look forward to talking about more relatable and relevant Sabahan law student topics. I'm your host, Amber. With me, I have Michelle. A big thank you to Tan Sri David Wong for coming on to this episode. If you haven't checked out our previous episodes, please do subscribe to us to stay updated on all our latest content. And see you in our next episode. Bye. (laughs)
0: Sorry now that I'm a little late I apologize that you had to wait It totally slipped my mind I lost all my sense of time So buy me that drink and just let me think And I'll tell you the reasons why